Hey, everyone. How are you? Good to see you. What an awesome time to just worship our God. Um, I do have a few announcements today. Uh, church camp is coming up 15 to 18 April at the Coleroy Center. So there is still room if you are keen to go. Um, let us know and we'll get you booked in. Um, ideally, deposits or the, the full amount, the, the balance is due in March. So get those in. And when you put them in, kindly say camp or something so it's a little easier to tell what's what. So thank you for that. There will be an email sent out soon about preparations for camp, if you have a special diet, things like that. Um, so 10 March, there's going to be a, a barbecue following the church service. So that's just a, we just stick around afterwards. We take out some of the chairs, we set up tables and we have the barbecue going and uh, bring sides and desserts and drinks. And it's just a great time to hang out and have an extended time of fellowship. So that's uh, look, looking forward to that. Um, also another thing just that we're also working on is a rebuild of the website. And for that, we need some content. So that means that at some stage, maybe on that day, we'll have uh, um, pictures being taken. If you're uncomfortable with the idea of your picture being taken or your likeness used on our website, please let us know and we will, we will honor that. Um, but we just need content so that people can see what church is like, so they can know what to expect and, um, it's awesome to, to really have a church family that loves Jesus, that loves one another, and likes to be together. So thanks so much for your contributions to that end. Why don't we turn to Romans chapter 9, and let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much that we will sing of your love forever. And uh, we, we get tired of singing, our voices give out. But a day is coming when we will forever be singing without weariness, without sickness or having to do something else, but we will be in your presence forever. And we look forward to that. And we thank you for the opportunity to give us now to praise you and to lift our voices as one united as the body of Christ to worship you and praise you because you are glorious and good. Our father in heaven. And uh, thank you for Jesus who's interceding for us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills us and helps us and comforts us. And Lord, as we read your word today, I pray you would speak to our hearts that if there's, there, there are areas of our lives where we have resistance to you or unanswered questions, or we have a bone to pick. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. You would gently show us our need to submit to you and that we would be your humble, obedient children who glorify you always in Jesus name. Amen. Of all creation, God gave human beings the capacity for rational thought, verbal communication, and we do hunger for knowledge. We're always looking for something that interests us. And if there's something that does interest us, we want to know how it works and we want to know more about it. And because we have minds that weigh ideas and judgments based upon, make judgments based upon our understanding of things, there is a common pitfall that we have a problem with God being God because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So we don't understand what he's doing and we can almost stand in judgment of God that he's not doing what he should be doing. And he's certainly not operating in the time frame that we think he should. 
But God said this in Isaiah 55 verses eight and nine, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, your ways, my ways says the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Since God's thoughts are not my thoughts, they're foreign to me. Since his ways are not my ways and they're higher than mine, his actions may make no sense to me. And even if he explained his purpose and everything he does, I could not fully appreciate why he's doing something or how he's doing something. Um, And he's under no obligation to explain himself to us. He doesn't have to justify why he does this or that for us to go. Okay. You know, that's a good idea. God. Well, of course it's a, it's not just a good idea. He is good and his actions are good. We don't understand them, but we can trust him. And we, the, the, the gap between his thoughts and our thoughts, his ways and our eyes is ways is so great. And we're so attached to our own ways and thoughts that his purposes can seem foolish, that it's not really worth it. And we can make some irrational judgments of God being brutal or a tyrant or a divine sadist or other horrible things, completely out of ignorance of God and unwillingness to submit to him. So up till now in Romans, uh, Paul's established the righteousness of God, the sinfulness of mankind, the new and living way that God has made to salvation through Jesus that guilty sinners are justified. We can be forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus made righteous by faith in Christ who died and rose again. The law could only condemn us, but Jesus, he has, he has made a new way to salvation. So in him through faith, we've died to sin. We've died to the law and we've been raised with him to new life by the power of the Holy spirit. So like we talked about last week, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from his love. It's forever. It's active. It's powerful. And for our good always. And so chapter nine begins a new section through chapter 11 that deals with God's sovereignty, his purposes in election. That's his choices. And that his word stands. God's promises are sure. He's able to make all things to work together for good to those who love God. So we begin in Romans nine, starting in verse one. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness me witness in the Holy spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. In the new Testament, we see many things that Paul suffered from the hands of his fellow countrymen, Jews for his faith in Jesus. And God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but it wasn't like his loyalty or his love shifted from the Jews to the Gentiles. No, he still loved the Jewish people. He identified with them as brethren. He's like, those are my brethren. I want them to come to Jesus. Even as I have, he had not disowned them because they largely rejected Christ as their Messiah. And with a clean conscience, he's saying, guys, I love the Jewish people. 
I have real sorrow and grief under their unwillingness to come to Christ, but he could sympathize also how they persecuted Christ because he did as well for a long time. He thought that was his, his job was to ferret out and destroy this heresy wreak havoc on the church. And he said this in Acts 26 verse nine, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul had grace towards people who were still doing that for people who did that to him. And it's like, they're my brethren, but I want them to come to Jesus. And I would be willing if it were possible that if I could be cut off from Christ so they could be brought in, it would be worth it. I want them to know Jesus. I want them to be saved by their savior, to be redeemed by Christ. He wanted them to be reconciled to God. And so him, again, confirming his love to them would make the things that he's going to say more easily digestible that he's not taking shots at them, but he really loves them and he wants them to come to Christ. And he says the Israelites were a blessed people. They are a blessed nation, specially chosen by God as his special people. And then he starts listing a bunch of things that God did like adopting them as his own children. He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And he directed Moses to say to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, 22, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now I love that he calls Israel his son. And then my firstborn by qualifying it in that way, he's opening up the door for more children, children that aren't of those, his fold children of the Gentiles, my firstborn. So there's going to be more, not only son, no, Jesus is his only son, but Israel, he looked at that nation as his people. He led them, but with his physical presence in the wilderness, right? The cloud of p- pillar of fire uh, during the, d- during the night and the pillar of cloud during the day, they received the law of Moses engraved with the finger of God. They were directed by God in ministry and worship. They were given a covenant of law. They had the testimony of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and God appearing to them and them being protected and delivered from their enemies through him. And then Jesus was born a Jew of the tribe of Judah. And so he affirms Jesus is God in verse five. Great verse. It says Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Jesus is God. He is the express image of God in human form. As it says in Hebrews one, he is the living word, the alpha and omega. He is God. And he's like, amen. Romans nine, verse six, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is those who are of the children who are the children of the flesh These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. It's clear biblically, historically 
The Jews as a nation have denied Jesus as being the Christ, the Messiah who is promised by God and this rejection of Jesus by the Jews. It was not that the word of God was powerless or unfruitful. We'll see that it was Israel's rejection was their choice as well as God's sovereign plan because through their rejection, he would also bring in the Gentiles. He had salvation in mind in that choice. Then he reiterates something that he's taught earlier in Romans chapter two, that the real children of Abraham, they weren't determined by genetics or ethnicity. He writes this in Romans two 28 for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Abraham believed God. And so those who have faith in God, they are the true children of Abraham. He is our father of faith. So it was an Isaac, not an Ishmael that Abraham's seed would be traced to the Messiah. There's a lot of nations. There's a lot of people who are direct uh, descendants of Abraham that are not Jews. There are children of Jacob who were not children of God because they did not place their faith in God. They didn't place their faith in Jesus Christ. So it's by God's sovereign design that the birthright of Abraham would pass through Isaac. He's the son of promise. Now in Galatians four, Paul sets Ishmael and Isaac, the sons of Abraham opposite from one another as an allegory. He says, Ishmael was the son of a slave, Hagar, right? That was, she was an Egyptian slave and the mother of Ishmael. But Isaac was the son of a free woman of Sarah. And so Ishmael is a picture of the flesh, a son of the flesh in bondage that represented the covenant of law. But Isaac was born free according to God's promise that he made. And so that's a picture of the new covenant and uh, the gospel. So being a Jew, keeping the law of Moses, it did not make anyone a child of God. He's explaining that here just because you can say Abraham is your father. The devil could be your father. Because you don't love God. You're not obeying God. So faith is the way that you are a child of God. It's not through ethnicity. So Jew and Gentile can be born again and adopted as God's children. The covenant of law, it revealed our sin, our need for a savior. The new covenant, it's established upon better promises and gives eternal life. It's the children of promise. God considers his seed. So it's like we can be children of God. And he affirms this in Galatians 4:28. Now we brethren, as Isaac was are children of promise. The promise that God has made, we can know we are born again. We are in him and we have the right to become children of God. Romans nine, verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father, Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Paul now gives another example to show that the purpose of God's election would stand. And to elect again is to choose. So God is God. His ways and 
thoughts are higher than ours and he makes decisions and his decisions will stand. His word will stand. The background is after being married to Isaac, Rebecca was uh, unable to be pregnant for a while. Isaac prayed for her and she conceived and bore twins. So she's got twins tussling in her womb. And she's like, what is going on? This is not a normal pregnancy. And she inquired and the Lord said, you know, there's two nations struggling together in your womb and the older will serve the younger. God made that choice before Esau or Jacob had done anything. Now, when we choose between buying a brand of an appliance or a car, or we're choosing applicants for a job, or we're picking teams for sport, we often choose on the basis of merit, right? We're going to look at people and go, well, what's a good fit? What's a good fit for my house? Or what, what's the, you know, how are the emissions of this vehicle? And so there's so many preferences that we may have, whether it be education or experience, skills, age, if they're a family member or not, that could impact our decision. Or if it's recommended by a friend, a person who goes to the Melbourne cup, they're going to, if they're playing the ponies, they're going to choose a horse that they think can win. They're going to put their money on a horse. That's actually in the race. Not one that's, you know, still in Adelaide in a stable. They're like, I'm going to make a choice based upon what I think will work. If I'm picking teams to play basketball, captains will choose players. They could choose like, you know what? We want to stomp our opponent or they could say, you know, a competitive game is better. So two tallest people, you're on opposite teams or the two best shooters. You're on opposite teams and we'll build from there. So you guys can cover each other. You can at least have some good competition. We want to keep things fair. So we have a competitive match. Our preference might automatically exclude someone from a role. I remember I was trying to get into a trade and asked my uncle if there were any positions open in his company. And he said, well, no, you need to make your own reputation. You need to learn to stand on your own two feet. I don't want to give the appearance of you coming in and be given preferential treatment. So you need to work for someone else. So that was just based because uh, I was related to him. If you go to the nursery to buy plants, you're going to think about where are these going to be planted? Do we want shade? Will they live in, in full sun or shade? And we make a decision based upon that. So there are reasons behind every single decision we make. We may not even know what our reasons are, but know that if we would think about it, well, why are you watching that movie? Why are you going to that place? Why did you choose this? And, and if we think about it, we're like, well, I want to. Okay, that's good enough. It's your life, right? Now, Paul showed, even though Esau was born first, and that was the traditional thing, is that the oldest would have the birthright and be the heir, that God chose his younger brother, Jacob, to be Isaac's heir. So it was not on the basis of merit. It wasn't because one was good and the other was bad. No, they, neither of them were worthy. Neither of them were excluded on the basis of what they did or what they would be. God made a decision and he chose Jacob. Now in Malachi one, two, and three, it says this, this is the quote that he is speaking from Paul is, I have loved you says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother said the Lord yet Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. 
Isn't it amazing that God freely loves us? He loves people that he says, you know, I've loved you. And you go, in what way have you loved me? Like even, not even acknowledging one way that God has shown his love to us, but saying, prove it. Prove that you love me, God. When God has only loved us, he is love, right? He has done everything for us. And yet we can be like the children of Israel who are like, well, in what way have you loved me? Convince me that you've loved me. God did not make a covenant with Jacob because he was worthy. He did not refuse to make a covenant with Esau because he was unworthy. God elected Jacob to show it was not according to his age, not according to his merit, but of him who calls. God said, it's my choice. And he made that decision. It's God's choice that would stand simple as that. Now the Bible knowledge commentary, it makes a good point. It says hatred in this sense is not absolute, but relative to a higher choice. We see Jesus use this language when he says, no man can serve two masters that you must hate. You would hate one and love the other or be loyal to one and despise the other. See how it's a relative choice. It's not saying that you despise and wish evil upon someone, but that in hating one, it's not the same between them. You're making a distinction. He said also in John 12, 25, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, if you're like me, you're like, hold on. You're saying that you, I can accept that you love Jacob, but how could you hate Esau? Like, how could you, as if he's with, if that means withholding any love from Esau. Well, I like this story that Newell wrote. It says a man once said to Spur- a woman once said to Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That Spurgeon replied is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. So it kind of flips it around where we feel like there's this entitlement to be loved because we are loved. If God's election depended upon our merit, None of us could earn his favor. None of us could keep his favor because it's his decision to love us. That is immutable. That is constant. That's his choice to love everyone because for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So it's God's choice to save. It's God's choice to love all of those who are his. It's because he has chosen you out of his goodness and grace. Like Jacob, who was a supplanter, a heel catcher. He was a bit of a weasel or maybe complete weasel, but God loved him and he would have him. And he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your descendants forever. God's choice. Not one choice of God's is random or arbitrary. He has plans and purposes and all of his choices. And the basis for his decision is him who we know is all good, merciful, faithful, loving, gracious. We continue in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. 
for the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose. I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills. He hardens. It's amazing how overweening our judgments can be in that we can observe what happens and exclaimed, that's not fair or that's wrong when it's God who did it, when it's God who's doing it. There's no, he says, is there unrighteousness with God? Let's just remember who's God. Is he unrighteous in any way? No, certainly not. Is there unrighteousness with us? Yeah. Yeah. That's why we need a savior, right? Cause we are, there is none righteous. No, not one, none who understand none who seek after God. That's the reality. And so God has revealed himself through Jesus, who is righteousness for us because we are not and never could be righteous. God has every right to extend mercy and compassion on whoever he wants. And we should not resent his grace that he gives to others. Pastor David Guzik wrote this. God is never less than fair with anyone, but fully reserves the right to be more fair with individuals as he chooses. No one is ever unfair for not giving mercy. God's not under any obligation to be merciful, to be gentle. He's wise. He's compassionate. He's faithful. We can act like we're entitled to good when we actually deserve punishment for our sin. But God continues to be gracious and good because God's good and created everything. He has all power and authority over everything he has made. And he can accomplish his purposes however he chooses. God chose to exalt Pharaoh for the purpose of glorifying his name and to declare it throughout the whole earth. Um, when Moses was sent to Pharaoh with the message, you know, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. Pharaoh followed his natural, natural inclination to rebel against God. And so God willed to harden his heart. So he would be glorified even through an unbeliever. Verse 19, you say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Paul anticipates people pushing back against God's sovereignty and his right to do everything that he wants everything he decides. And they're saying, well, why does God find fault with people who do his will? Why does God hold people responsible for God's choice? Now our flesh may take up this protest, but it's really ridiculous in light of the revelation of God in scripture. It really paints man as an innocent victim without the freedom to choose that God has given everyone. We are naturally his enemies guilty of all manner of sin. We are guilty of continually resisting and rejecting him. And he says, who are you to reply against God? 
Is man so proud that he thinks he knows better than God? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Is man so foolish as to argue with God? Certainly. Yes, that, that, that's us, right? We're like, hold on a minute. Wh why did you do that? Professing to be wise, m man blindly worships the creation over the creator. And we, man has an intrinsic problem with God being God. Because we desire and demand for that power for ourselves. Not only to do as we see fit, but to control others as well. We want to be God. That is man's natural condition. And that's why there's people who deny the existence of God because they will try to sit in his judgment seat. So he uses an example of a potter. He wields power over the clay to make whatever he wants. And in those days you would dig up some clay and uh, refine it, add temper to it, shape it for any purpose that you have in mind. And no one resents a potter for saying, I have some clay that I have dug out of the ground and I'm going to make a snake with it. Like, okay, it's your clay. You can make a snake. I want to make a bowl or an ashtray. Okay, cool. Um, you have that right. It's your clay. You can do whatever you want with it. You can be as creative or not creative as you feel like being today. So a potter can make a vase or a bedpan out of the same clay. Every object that's been fired, it's going to serve its intended purpose by the potter, not the object, not the clay itself. So Paul asked, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? That would be an interesting conversation, right? You make a, a platter and you're like, that looks good. And the platter's like, why didn't you give me a handle? It's very odd, but of course not. It's not going to complain because it would not exist unless the potter had an idea and a choice to make it as he did or she did. Without the potter, the clay would serve no practical purpose whatsoever. The thing that man resents more than anything else is not that he's a pot rather than a bull because we naturally love ourselves, but it's intolerable for people that God has given a will of their own, that there is a sovereign God before whom they owe their very existence and before whom they must submit. Some people will not submit to that. They are not interested in, in that idea at all, but this is what God teaches that he is God. He has made us. He has created us from the dust of the ground. His fingerprints are all over us. He's given us a conscience. He's given us the ability to reason as he reasons. He says, come, let us reason together where we can converse with God, that he can be our friend. That doesn't happen with animals or any other created thing. Man has been created in God's image. And as Potter has power over clay, God has power over all those created in his image and everything he's made in the heavens and earth. God has sovereignty. He rules over all people. He, he literally formed Adam from the dust of the ground and we're all descendants of him. Now, if God wants to make a person glory elevated like Pharaoh, so his wrath and power could be revealed, it's his choice to endure their pride and folly with much long suffering. God put up with Pharaoh and his boasting against him, allowing him to remain and promoting him again and again until he is king. 
He endured him all that time so that he could be glorified so that his name would be spoken in Jericho and in Canaan after the children of Israel crossed. And those two spies went to Rahab's house. She said, all the people's hearts are melting because we've heard about your God and how awesome he is and the great things he's done to bring you out of Egypt, to destroy their armies in the red sea, to bring you through alive. And here you are on our, on our doorstep. And we're all scared to death of your God. They weren't scared to death of the Hebrews. It was their God who was awesome and mighty. There's other passages of scripture. They go into more detail about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Two sides of the same coin. So we'll, we'll tackle those when we get to them. But no one, the, the point here is that no one can rightly blame God for the way he chooses to glorify himself through what he has made. He's going to accomplish his good plans and purposes through it. Verse 25, as he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people there. They shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, Sabaoth had left of a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. Now the Jews believed that God had chosen them to be his people. They struggled to accept that God had called Gentiles as well. That was their obstacle, right? Their stumbling stone. First trusting in Jesus, that he is the Messiah. And then that the Gentiles were also called children of God, that the Gentiles too could be filled with the Holy spirit, that it wasn't just for them. It was for everyone. Peter needed to learn this. Paul, the other Christians in Jerusalem, they had to discuss this because they were not accepting it right away. They needed to learn this. What the Jews viewed as an exclusive covenant with God, he made inclusive by making a way of salvation through faith in Jesus for whoever will repent and trust in him. So these quotes, Hosea 2:23, Hosea 1:10, it's saying that God will have mercy, so it's his choice to have mercy on those who had not obtained mercy, calling people who were not his people to be his people. And he's like they will say you are my God. They would have him as their father. So to people who are not physical descendants of Abraham, God would make spiritual heirs by faith, give them the right to become children of God. It's God's will for sinners to receive Jesus by faith and to become his elect. Now verse 27, that's a quote from Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. The context is very interesting because God had judged his people for their sins by the warfare with the Syrians and Babylonians, but he would save a remnant of them because God left a remnant. There could be an expectation that there would be restoration to their land. There would also be restoration to God in worship and the coming Messiah that would give an opportunity for the Messiah to come and God to fulfill his promises. Even though they were a small remnant, he preserved them with an eye to the future to keep in mind that covenant he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then that new covenant that he would make through Jesus. 
So his word and promise to Israel had not failed at all. Though they were in Babylon for 70 years, he was true to his word. And Israel's here to this day that the remnant would be saved, that through Christ, people would be added to the fold of God sheep from another fold that he's going to bring in to call him father on the basis of the covenant God has made with them. So the law of Moses, if you were to say, look at their performance because of their sin and rebellion, God was under no obligation to do them good. He could heap every curse and the law upon them for their transgression. They worshiped other gods. They broke his covenant yet God saved a remnant of them by his grace because he chose them because he wanted to save them. And it says in Isaiah one nine, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. Now, if you keep reading in the very next verse, he calls is he calls the people of Judah, Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, you guys are just like them. And you've sinned in light of the glory you've received from me in light of the knowledge that you have. They didn't have the knowledge of God in Sodom and Gomorrah, but they did in Israel and they were sinning against the light that God had given them. So he had every right to wipe them off the face of the earth. Yet he chose them. He would save them. He would preserve them. They deserve death but God's will was to save those who would repent, put away their idols, return to him in faith. So God's choice to be long suffering towards his people would accomplish the purpose of revealing his wrath upon sin, his glory in Israel's restoration, his faithfulness in bringing them out of the land of captivity and sending Jesus, the Messiah and extending that hope of salvation to everyone. And we have benefited infinitely from what God has done. Verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law for they stumbled at that stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. God has done such an amazing thing through the gospel of Jesus that Gentiles who were not pursuing God, who were not pursuing righteousness would find it through faith in Jesus. We weren't even looking for it. We weren't asking for it, but we found it in Jesus. Ironically, Israel, they had received the law of righteousness. They did not obtain it though, because they tried to earn it through their works, not by faith in God. They tried to earn it by works that could never save them. The law could never save. It could just condemn. God chose the Jews and then they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Notice it's a, he believes on him that God would bring salvation through Jesus Christ alone, through faith in him. The verses he quotes are in Isaiah 8:14 and Isaiah 28:16. Those verses reveal that Jesus is that foundation stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. We see that he is the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders that God has made chief of the corner. 
So God's choosing the Jews, choosing to send Jesus, choosing freely to offer the gospel to Jew and Gentile. It shows God's purposes coming to fruition in a way no one could have predicted. No one could have dreamed that God would become a man and that he would take our sins upon him and take our punishment, provide atonement, and that we could be raised to new life through him. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. Now the Jews, they felt entitled before God under the covenant of law. Like I've done all these things. Give me blessings, please. I've done all this. So God, you do your part. I've done my part. Now you do yours. Bless me in my field. Bless me in my business. Bless me in my marriage. You know, like give me those blessings. Kind of I've earned them. I deserve them. And if they should have that view, God forbid that as Christians, we imagine we are entitled to God's grace and favor because of the gospel, right? We've received freely salvation and forgiveness. And then we can start thinking that we deserve it. He owes us. And my opinions matter. Now we can rest assured God's word. It remains in full force. His promises are sure his purposes and election stand. There's no unrighteousness with God and we have no right to criticize God's ways and purposes. It's like rather than excluding people, God. So he's not excluding people who never sought him because we see he calls them, right? He's called us. Instead of casting off those who reject him, he saves a remnant of them. He freely extends grace and mercy to, to all people according to his will so that we could be born again. So we could know God and he's demonstrated that he's long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. His will is to save. That's on one side of the coin. The other side is our responsibility to place our faith in him. Matthew Henry says this, that God has arranged our salvation so admirably that those who are saved must thank God only. And those who perish must thank themselves only. God said this in Hosea 13, nine, Oh, Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. Israel was destroyed by their sin, but God's will was always to help them, always to save them. And you can look at your life and say, man, I am ruined. I am destroyed. And my choices have contributed to that, but no, your help is from God. He is willed to help you. He has willed to redeem you and restore you. It will not be you. He cannot be to blame that you do not receive his love or that you do not submit to him. That is your place. And he gives you the faith to do that. So humble. Let's humble ourselves before him because his will has always been to help and to save even those who don't cry out to him. So I'd like to close in Isaiah 65 verses one and two. If you'll turn in your Bibles there, pretty much the middle of the Bible. Isaiah 65 verse one and two. It says this. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. 
according to their own thoughts. God who revealed himself to the Jews as I am. He also called out to the Gentiles and he was found by those who didn't ask for him, who weren't seeking him by those who were not called by his name. Now Israel, it means prevails with God or God fights. He reached out his arms to these people he had chosen and they rejected him. They were called by his name, but they rebelled against him. And what was their error? It says they walked according to their own thoughts. That was a mistake. The children of Israel made It's because they're not good. And they're walking according to their own thoughts, which are not good because they're not God's thoughts and they're not God's ways. And if they can have that error with the great revelation they had of God's presence and his power and his deliverance and salvation, they had that. We have that too. Let us not be those who are walking according to our thoughts, but submitting ourselves before God and live by faith in him. The Jews stumbled at Jesus. They stumbled over him and we can stumble over God's ways and the grace that he extends to others that we feel don't deserve it or because we're not receiving what we think we should. So let's, let's not resent with Let's not argue with God. Let's not resent his ways that we cannot understand. Leave the electing to God whose ways are not our ways. Praise the Lord. And let's choose to trust him. Let's choose to submit to him gladly and praise God for his mercy towards us. Let our lives be a a testimony of his goodness and love. I mean, we sing that song uh, or we sung it as kids. You know, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, everything that you love about life, you only can experience it because he's given you another day to walk this world. And let's thank him for that. Let's praise him for being our good God and our father. Let's pray. Thank you, father, for giving us another day to worship you, to praise you, to enjoy the life that you've given us now And to spend that time in fellowship with you, acknowledging that you do love us. Lord, may we not be as people who are like, you know, I'm not really sure that God loves me. Help us to to see your love everywhere through other believers, through the love of Jesus, through your word, through the things that you've been gracious to us and compassionate to us continually. And, And I pray, Lord, that we would, in these difficult passages, just throw ourselves upon your mercy and grace. We don't, we can't fully understand you because you are infinite and eternal. Your ways and thoughts are not ours, but Lord, I pray that our, our thoughts and ways would be more like yours, that we would be like Jesus. And thank you that you've purposed to make us more like him. And uh, may we submit to your rule. May we rejoice in your sovereignty and your choices, knowing that you are good and you are forever our father, the one who loves us in Jesus name. Amen.